Let's go ahead and get started, please, if we could, with a word of prayer. Our Father, we pause in our hearts at this moment to give you praise and honor and glory for you are all deserving. Father, we thank you for your scriptures and the privilege we have to openly discuss them. I pray that you would guide our hearts and our minds this morning that we might understand correctly out of this passage. Lord, may you be given glory and honor as our understanding increases and therefore our obedience and our submission to you increases. Father, thank you for the body of Christ and the joy we have to be together. May we together with one mouth and one voice give you praise this morning. Of course, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is uh, week number 26 in our study of eschatology. And last time we finished chapter 37, which you'll remember had three specific prophecies in it. And we walked through those. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 37, really the nation has been restored. The physical blessings are there. Um, God is in their presence. Uh, the people are flourishing. The land is producing. Uh, all of those things are accomplished. The only thing left to be detailed by Ezekiel will be the temple itself and the sacrifices or the ordinances that are supposed to be performed there. And then he'll speak about how the land was divided. And that's really the last uh, five chapters of Ezekiel but before you get there, you have to walk through chapters 38 and 39, which are difficult at best. And uh, I'll, I'll say right up front here that uh, my understanding of these passages hopefully is increasing, but it's nowhere near as close as I am in the other passages in Ezekiel. Um, it's hard to understand when... This, uh, these two chapters detail a war that happens, and there's debate. Does it happen at the beginning of the tri uh, Millennial Kingdom? Does it happen at the end of the Millennial Kingdom? Is it during the Tribulation time, before you get to the Millennial Kingdom? When exactly is this war? And uh, within these two chapters, there are passages that make it sound like it's at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, and there are other passages in these same two chapters that make it sound like it's at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. So we'll walk through all of that and try and sort it out. Um, I'll tell you what I believe in the end, okay? <laughs> um, um, I, I do have reasons for what I believe, but I would never be dogmatic about these two chapters because they are at best difficult. Um, and so, but we'll look at them, we'll look at the evidence that is within this passage and we'll look at some external evidence to try and pin a date or a time when it is. Um, and I'll tell you what I believe and, and why I believe it, but um, if you don't agree with me, I'm not gonna, not gonna be upset. Uh, about it. I'm not ever upset if you don't agree with me, but in particular for these two passages, uh, I'm not going to get upset. Um, this is about a war, 
And it's about a war of God with the whole world except for the nation Israel. And he's in Israel, and he make his presence known in Israel, and we'll see that as we go through this. But from a high view, um, the whole world is coming against unified Israel. And they're coming from all directions. We'll see uh, east, west, north, um, to the south is water, so um, maybe even some come from the south. Um, but we'll see the whole world is, is converging. And, you know, right up front you would ask questions, well, if this is um, during the Millennial Kingdom, how could it possibly be that as Christ reigns from Jerusalem that the whole world comes against him in Jerusalem? How, how could that happen? So um, we'll have to answer that, right? Uh, but not this morning. There's a few things that I want to look at before we get to those more difficult questions, and hopefully some of this will shed light on how we answer the more difficult questions. Um, from a high point of view, the whole world comes against uh, Israel, and God himself uh, steps out of heaven uh, to earth there's a great earthquake because of the presence of the God there. The mountains fall, the valleys are flattened. Um, and God himself destroys all these enemies, and he does it with uh, a couple of elements. He rains torrential rain upon them. He causes confusion, so they kill one another instead of killing the Israelis. And then ultimately, when they're still coming, he sends fire from heaven on them and hailstones and brimstone and all that kind of stuff that you see in other places where God destroyed people. So he does this again, except for this time, it's a, a broader scheme. Um, and it, there's so many dead bodies when it's all said and done. These are people laying dead on the planet that it takes the Israelis seven months to bury all of them. And it takes them seven years to burn all of the armaments that came against them. So there's a lot of stuff uh, coming against them if it takes seven years to burn it and seven months to bury all of the bodies. And then after the seven months, when they've got most of them buried, if you're walking across a particular patch and you come across a human bone, you're to put a marker there and there's people who are assigned to come and pick up that bone and take it to a particular place and bury it where all the other soldiers have been buried. So it's not just you bury them wherever you find them. There's a particular designated area where the Israelis will take all the bodies and bury them. And, so, and they do that to cleanse the land. Uh, and they're not allowed... If you're going to burn the armaments, you're not allowed to use wood to get the fire started. Uh, you can't bring anything other than the armaments, and then you set them on fire. So, um, you know, and these are things described in the scripture as shields and swords and chariots and that kind of thing, all being horse-drawn. So, don't know if that's literal or um, is it just figurative? But anyway, they... They, for seven years, they clean up this mess uh, after the battle takes place. And it's not really a battle. It's more like we see in Revelation, more like a slaughter. 
um, because they're, as far as I can tell, there are no Israelis that are hurt or that fight. It's all between God and these forces. Although it looks like the Israelis are going to have to fight, but they never do. Okay, and there's a couple of things that I want to note. And in particular, those are, um, why does this happen? And, um, well, two things. Why, why does this whole war happen? Who causes these people to come against Christ again, or a second time, or maybe before the other times that we know about? Or, and, and then, what is, God's, what is God doing during all of this? What is, what is His purpose for this to happen? Because we all understand this is under the ordination of God. Nothing happens on this planet or in any of the creation that's not ordained of God. It's all according to His plan. So why is He um, either causing or allowing this to happen? And those are good questions to ask so that you get a, a big perspective of what's going on. And the answers are similar to some other things that we've looked at. The, um, okay, the, let's look at why does God have this war to take place? Whenever it does take place, what is his purpose in having it. And there's several passages that I want to look at. The first is in chapter 38 and verse 16. And I think that the scriptures are explicit here as to why God wants this war to take place. So in 38:16, you see Ezekiel write, and you will come up against me, my, my people Israel, come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through, your, through you before their eyes, O Gog. And Gog is, and we'll talk about this, we're just not there yet. Gog is who this whole prophecy is addressed to. Um, so God's speaking to someone named Gog, and he says that, You'll come against Israel in the last days, whatever that means, and we'll talk about these things, so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. So there's the reason that God is having this battle take place, is so that He might be sanctified. He might be set apart. He might be seen as unique among all of the creation. As a matter of fact, he might be seen, as we'll see later, as the Lord of the creation. So this is why God wants this battle to take place. This is the same reason you'll remember that he restored Israel. This is the same reason that he gave salvation to the Israeli people is so that his name might be sanctified. And so this is a continuation of what God has said before. You can look down in verse 23 of this chapter, and he'll say it again in a different way. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. 
So when God comes against all of these forces that are gathered, strategies have been planned, um, they, they know what their attack is, they've been coordinated with all these other nations to all come at the same time to invade Israel, and God says, the reason all this is happening is so that I might be magnified. Now, for me to say that would be arrogance. For God to say that is right and proper because he is all good and everything he does is perfect. And so he deserves to be magnified and praised and glorified. And so God's purpose in this battle is so that his name might be magnified and that all the nations, it says some of the nations, but you see clearly that the whole world would know about this, that they will know that he is the Lord. Same thing we've seen before in other passages. He goes on and down in chapter 39, and this, sound, this should sound somewhat familiar with you. In verse 7, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So the question immediately comes to mind, well, when are, when are these people profaning the name of God? And we saw previously that that happened when the nation of Israel was scattered because the apparent reason for that to the people of the earth is because God's not able to hold them together and he's not able to protect them and so we just have ransacked them and they've been scattered everywhere and even the Israelis would say we've been driven from our homeland so God is not for us profaning the name of God we saw that clearly before but is that the same thing that's going on here we'll answer that later because you really don't know until we get the whole context on the table. But we do know one thing, that God's purpose in this is so that the profanity will stop, that it won't go on forever, that he'll put an end to it, that his name might not be profaned any longer. So um, this is where God puts a final stop to it. And is... Again, is this before what we saw before or is it after? So we'll, we'll talk about that. And then down in verse 21 of this chapter, 20, of 39. And I will set my glory among the nations. And all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So there be nobody on the planet who doesn't understand what God has done. And that he, because he is able to do that, is to be glorified. So he'll set his glory everywhere on the planet, among all the nations. And so this is God's purpose. In, and this is always God's purpose in his ordained plan, is that he might be seen as the Lord, that he might be given glory, that he might be magnified, that he might be praised, that people would understand who he is and give him his due honor. That's always God's plan in his grand plan 
That's what the creation is all about. That's what all of history is about. That's what all of the future is about, is to ultimately give God glory. Now, we do that. We who believe in Jesus Christ do that willingly now. And we do it gladly because we understand who he is and what he's done for us personally and what he's done for the church corporately. And so we do that willingly now. But the whole world will do that willingly when this happens. Because they'll then understand whether they're believers or unbelievers doesn't matter because he has physically come against them and they will understand who he is and that he can do whatever he well pleases with his creation. And he does. And you see, and, and you'll see it in this, this two chapters. God is not uninvolved with his creation. He, he comes to earth himself to do this to these nations that come against him at, at this time. And so God is not just letting the creation go whichever way it wants to. He is active. And, and, and we'll see that. That's the second thing I want to look at in, the, in just in a general kind of view here is that it is God who even causes this war to happen. Maybe even with people who are unwilling to come against him. And let me, let me show you that in a couple of different passages. Back in chapter 38 and verse 4. <clears throat> well, let me read it from verse 1 and you'll, you'll, you'll begin to get the context of who God is talking to. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all of your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. So you see, God says, I'll put hooks in your jaws and turn you about and bring you out. Now, that turn about, we'll see it a couple of times in here, literally means to turn somebody who's going in this direction and turn them around 360 degrees. So the question in my mind is, is God really trying to retreat? And God says, oh, no, you won't. And drags him out into battle against him. Now, we'll see also in this that Gog devises plans. He has thoughts in his mind of plundering Israel. And so he cooperates in this plan. It's not that he does it against his will. He's clearly willingly. But here at the beginning, God, God says, I'll drag you out to the battlefield. I'll put hooks in your draw, jaws and make you come out with all your horses and your horsemen and all your swords. And so here's God dragging them out to battle. He causes this to happen. He wants this to happen. 
Okay, a little hard to think about it that way, but here it is in black and white. And so God is the one who initiates this. Now look down in verse um, 10 through 12, and you'll see that God does not do this against his will. Thus says the Lord God in verse 10 of 38, It will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, speaking to God, and you will devise an evil plan, and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live, and I love this phrase, at the center of the world. And that literally means at the navel of the world. So, you know, people who talk about all these things happening in Europe and in Asia, and that's where in the United States is going to be involved. Here, Scripture says this happens at the center of the world. The Middle East, Israel, Jerusalem, is the center of the world. It's where it always has evolved around, and it's where it always will. And so be careful of far-fetched plans that speak of all these other nations from across the world. This is where it takes place, is at the navel of the world. And you notice that God devises plans. He, he thinks about this. He has strategy. He coordinates with other nations. And so it's not that he does it against his will. Don't get that idea. But God is the one who initiates it. And then God participates in it fully. He does what he wants to do. To a point. <laughs> And then he stopped dead in his tracks. Okay, so God is participating in this, but God is the one who is initiating it. Look in verse 16 of chapter 38. And you'll see it again. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you out, bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So God is the one who brings them out against my land. And you remember we saw this before. There's something special about the land of Israel that God doesn't just call it the land that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I'm jealous for my land. This is a special part of the earth, the land mass, that is special to God for his own purposes. Because this is where he sanctifies himself. This is where he sets his presence. And only here. We don't see God setting his presence anywhere except for on the mountains of Israel. That was true um, with the tabernacle. That was true with the temples. All in the land of Israel. So... Um, so God brings them out. And then look in chapter 39 and verse 2. And he says this, um, making a 360 degree turn again. 39.2 And I will turn you around 
drive you on, take you up from the remotest part of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So it's like God driving cattle. I'll bring you out, I'll drive you from the north, and you will come against my nation Israel. So this is clearly God orchestrating what happens here. The, the men who do it are willingly participating, but it's God who's causing it all to happen. And that's that, that tension that we always have through Scripture, right? That God is in sovereign control, but men operate out of their volition. And those things do not violate each other because God is sovereign over his creation, but men act out of their own will and volition. Can't totally reconcile that. And as has been said in the past, when two things stand side by side in Scripture, you don't try and reconcile them. They're not opposed to one another. They're two parallel paths that never intersect. Men do what they want to do, and God is sovereign and controls all that there is. And you don't try and reconcile those two things. You can't. And, but both are taught in Scripture. And you see it even here in this passage. That these guys are doing what they want to do. They're devising plans, but God is driving them on. So it's not that God... Well, yeah, it's true. Both of them are true. Um, and it's not that God is ever the, um, the one who is evil in driving men on. He's not causing them to be evil, but he's allowing them to do what they want to do, and behind it all is his sovereign plan. And you just have to accept those two things, and you don't try and reconcile them. And then finally, look down in chapter 39 and verse 8. <laughs> I love it when God does this. Behold, it is coming. It shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. So when God says something's going to happen, it is going to happen. There is no possibility that it will not happen. And he, he said this before. Look over in 36, 36. And we, we saw this similar kind of thing when he was talking about Israel and their restoration in 30, chapter 36, verse 36. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. So when God says he's, he's going to do something or something is going to happen, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. People may say, nah, it's never going to happen. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. Never could happen. Don't see the possibility of that. If God said it, it will happen. It may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. But it will happen. There's no possibility that it won't. So those who say, this is an allegory. This is just um, a mystical prophecy. This points to the New Testament as an interpreted in the New Testament. Then they say, well, God said he's going to do what he wrote here. 
So now you're saying he's not? I, I can't go there. I mean, and he says it multiple times. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I mean, how do you get around that? I don't, I don't see how you get around it. Um, but there are those who do, or at least they try to. Yeah, we want to be captain of our own ship. Yeah. We want to be in control, right? That we are able and we will. No, we're not. And no, we won't. <laughs> Well, yeah, and you're right. I mean, God currently restrains. We would be much worse off if he did not. And, you know, and the scriptures speak of the common grace of God, like he allows rain to fall on both the evil and the good so that the planet may be nourished and may produce food for us. Um, so there's this common grace of God that is to his creation. But one day he's going to remove that. And that's when it all breaks loose. That's when you see how bad we really can be. And I, I went back and I reviewed, just for my own edification, um, some things in Revelation. And in Revelation, by pestilence and by disease and by wars, a fourth of the, nation, or the, fourth of the people on the planet are killed. Right at the, at the mid of, of the tribulation. And then the scriptures talk about when the sixth seal is broken, that armies are unleashed and they kill a third of, the, of mankind, is what it says. So if a fourth are killed at the beginning, then that leaves three-fourths. And if you kill a third of those, that's another fourth. So half of the people on the planet are immediately destroyed in tribulation. Now, today, there are 7.8 million people on the planet. So that means... Billion, sorry. So that means 4 billion people, if it happened today, would be wiped out immediately. And we worry about plagues that kill... You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's horrible, and I agree. But you talk about plagues that kill a couple of million people. And here we're talking about... Four billion people being killed in very short order. I mean, th this is nothing. This is nothing. And, you know, we talk about plagues. There will be a plague during the tribulation time because it uses the word pestilence, which just means disease. And so it's, yeah, it's coming. And... Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the kings who are running and saying, please let the rocks fall on me. <laughs> so those, that's the royalty.
Yeah, and I mean, it is going to be, as Christ said, unlike any other time. There never has been a time and there never will be another time like what is given in Revelation. So I just reviewed that for my own edification so I would have the statistics right. Okay, now we know why this war happens and we know who causes this war to happen and it's all orchestrated by God. So you need to keep that in mind as you read these two chapters that this is by the will and plan of God and he's doing it so that he might be magnified. That's the whole purpose in all of this. And so with, with that perspective, I want to just, we'll just start this kind of where I started in 38 and take a look at some of the things here and see if we can make some sense of some of the language. In, in 38.1, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Now you remember um, when we first started looking at the restoration of Israel back in chapter 34, that God said the same thing to the leaders of Israel. Help me find it here. And it's in the first 10 verses or so where he says that I am against you. Verse 10? Yeah. Well, in, in, in 10 says it. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So what does that mean about the leaders of Israel? That God removes them. And you notice he is distinctive between them and and his sheep, meaning they are not his sheep. Meaning when, when God has separated his sheep from the other Israelites, these are Israelites who are not going to be in his kingdom, that not every Israelite makes it into the kingdom of God. And you see that later when he uh, judges between one sheep and another, even after the leaders are removed. So God wipes away, removes these leaders. I don't know where they go. They may die or they may go to another land. I don't know. But I know they're not in restored Israel because God separates them. And neither are the fat and those that shove their horns at other sheep. They're not in the presence of God. So God, when God says he's against you, you're, you're in trouble. I mean, you're, you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. And, and here, the very first thing God says to Gog of Magog is that I am against you. Meaning, before this all takes place, Gog is already not one of the redeemed on the planet. That God is already against him. 
Now, this is Gog of Magog, and then it says the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That would be better interpreted as Gog, the chief of Meshach and Tubal. Because this, this Rosh, that word, is used all throughout Scripture, not as a name or not as a location, but as representing the chief, the highest one, the president, the emperor, whatever term you want to use, that's what it's really saying, is that this Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. The hero of that right, he, he is in charge. And we get the sense that he's in charge of the whole world, that he's the leader, at least, of all this orchestrated armies that come against God. Now, Gog, that name is only used one other, well, it's used two other places, but I don't want to go to the New Testament. I want to stay in the Old Testament. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it's in First Chronicles chapter 4, and it's where in the midst of giving the lineage of the 12 sons of Jacob, it's just one of the names in the list. And so it doesn't seem to be prominent, doesn't seem to be significant. Uh, it's just a name, just like all the other names that are given there. So you don't get much out of Gog. And actually, I think Gog is probably a title. It's, it's like president or emperor or you know, pope or whatever you want to use. It, it is a title that speaks of the chief leader at least of these lands that are spoken of here, of Magog, of Meshach, and of Tubal. Now those terms, especially Magog, is used other places in Scripture. And so I want to look at a couple of these. Um, it's used um, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 5, which is just a recount of what happens in Genesis 10. So let's look at Genesis 10. Because, you know, Chronicles doesn't reveal anything new, right? Chronicles is just the chronicles of the, the generations. It just lists all the generations. Um, doesn't really reveal anything new. So, but Genesis 10, after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, Well, actually, it's before the Tower of Babel. Um, Genesis 10, and then the first couple of verses. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And, the sons, were, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Tyrus. So right there you have some of these names, right? You've got Magog, you've got Meshach, and you've got Tubal. Those were sons, I think, of the youngest son of Noah, Japheth. And so you think about this, you look at Scripture, there's not a lot of detail given, 
But most people believe that the, that the sons of Japheth were to the north and further than Palestine, like up around the Black Sea and in that area, in northern of, north of Turkey. Okay, so it's pretty far up. It's in what a few years ago would have been known as Russia, but now is known as a whole bunch of different nations, right? Um, <clears throat> and so people immediately run and say, well, this is talking about Russia. And I, no, it's not. It's talking about people who live in the northern area. Okay, and, um, if, and it's absolutely true. If you go due north of Jerusalem, and you go far enough that it's not exactly, but it's almost on the same parallel as um, the Kremlin, that you run into the capital of Russia if you just go due north of Jerusalem. So you think about, well, is it talking about Russia? I, I don't think so. I think it's because the whole, the whole planet is different at this time than it is today. And, and nations, you know, yeah, they exist, but it's just people groups. And I think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who live to the north. They do have this ruler that they call Gog. And in the land of where the sons of Noah originally went. Doesn't mean that that's what they're called at the time that this happens, it's just indicating um, a geography of where they're at and where they come from. And we'll see that God comes from the north as it's described in the scriptures here. Now, you, and you can immediately run to um, Daniel and you'll see there's great wars and that a group comes from the north. Doesn't mean that it's the same group. It's just, if you're going to invade Israel, where are you going to come from? Probably from the north. Because if you try and go east, you've got to go across the desert. And if you go much to the west, you're in water. So about the only way to invade Israel is to come from the north. Doesn't mean people don't come from the other areas, but mainly from the north. Okay, so that's where this group is located at. They're to the north of Palestine. They're up by the Black Sea. Um, it's cold up there. Um, so you start getting into the mountains. And that's the, the land of Meshach and Tubal with their leader called Gog of Magog. Okay, and, and this goes all the way back to the sons of Noah. I mean, think about it. There's only, th there's only what, eight people alive on the planet? And that's where God starts with this prophecy against uh, over here in Ezekiel 38. He's talking about <clears throat> people who don't show up until you go all the way back to Genesis 10. So he's indicating an area and a group of people and the origin of all these things that take place. <clears throat> now, we will see God, <clears throat> excuse me, in Revelation <clears throat> but I, <clears throat> I don't want to go there yet because we're going to use that to try and put time frame references. So those are the only two places in Scripture 
where you see the name Gog is in Revelation 20 and in 1 Chronicles 5. Other than here. Okay, so we're talking about and, and just Magog, <clears throat> as these names are given, is the grandson of Noah. Okay, so he's two generations removed from Noah. And so are, so are Tubal and Meshach for that um, matter. All right, now I just want to show you one other thing. That there are other people, other people groups that are cited with Gog of Magog other than just Tubal and Meshach. And you, you see them given in other places, well, in the next verse, actually, in chapter 38 and verse 5, you see these other nations given, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Okay, so Ethiopia, you know where Ethiopia is, right? It's still the same place, just south of Egypt. Put would have been probably just south of Ethiopia. So you're talking about northern Africa coming at this same time. Now, if you're in Africa, there's only really two ways to get to Israel. You've got to go across a little bit of water, same place that God parted when he parted the Great Sea for the... Um, for the Israelis to escape the Egyptians, you got to go across that water, or you can go up north through Egypt and come across that way, and you'll be coming in from the uh, from the west of Israel to invade them. So you got northern groups coming, you've got western groups coming, and then where's Persia? Well. Persia has always represented the area where Ezekiel is now. Matter of fact, he's in what is called Babylon, um, Babylonia. Um, but the next people to occupy that area are the Persians. The Persians are the ones who destroy the Babylonians. And so Persia would be that area and to the north of that area. And so that's to the east of Israel. And the only way to get there, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar came against Israel, he didn't come across the desert. He first went up the great river Euphrates and then came from the north back down to invade them. And so that's probably what Persia is going to do. They're going to go up to the north, meet up with the troops of, Gog, of Magog, and then all come from the north down against Israel. So you've got the east, the west, and the north. Basically all directions. Because if you go to the south, you just run out into the sea. So you've got all these people groups from all directions coming against Israel. It's really all nations coming against Israel at this time. We're not given all of their names. I mean, the next verse gives us a few more, and we'll look at this next time. Um, because our time has run out. But um, in 38 and verse 6, you see Gomer and all its troops, Beth Togarma, from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. 
So next time we'll look at where Gomer is. You have to go back to Noah again. And you'll find the name of Gomer and also of Gomorrah. And we'll, we'll see where they're located. I actually think they're far over in Europe, um, um, further over than where Gog and Magog would be. More to um, the west than they are. That's right. Yeah. And you have the command to go and really conquer, I mean, take, subdue the earth. Right. But what you have is in Genesis 11, where Gog and Magog are, I mean, Magog is right there with all this. Right. They all come together and they say, no, we're coming together one language, one people, we're going to build our own tower to heaven. <laughs> Right. Yeah, they all come and think they can do what they want to do. And, you know, at that time, God scattered them all. Here, he just kills them all. So um, we'll go on. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sketch it for you a little bit. And then we're going to go through it verse by verse, which we've started to do now. Um, just so we can see exactly what happens because unless you read the details, very difficult to pin a time on when this happens. And it's not. Right. Yeah, and I'm doing my best to drop my presuppositions as I look at this. I have not actually decided what I'm going to tell you about these two verses, these two chapters. I'm, 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 it's getting clearer to me what I'm going to say, but I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. Oh yeah, I've never studied Ezekiel 38 and 39 before. So I'm right there with you, trying to go in and figure out what this is, and you have to discard all your presuppositions. You can't uh, think you know what it is before you get there. You got to see what it says. And it's confusing. I'll, I'll admit, it's confusing, but it's becoming clearer. <laughs> okay? So we'll talk about it next time. Thank you.